Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 113, if you would. As I said, later in our service, we'll have the privilege of celebrating God's grace and the picture of baptism. But first, let's turn to God's Word, specifically Psalm 113, to see what God says about His grace and His glory. We've been studying the Psalms together over the last year, and we've called this series, Pour Out Your Heart to Him. Because whether in lament or request or in praise, the Psalms call on us, and really call on the whole world, to pour out your heart to Him. And Psalm 113 calls us to pour out our heart in praise to Him because there is none like Him. There is none like Him. It says this, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. That's God's word for us today. Now, right there in the middle of Psalm 113, and central to the psalm, really central to the whole Bible, is that phrase in verse 5, who is like the Lord our God? That rhetorical question is asked frequently in Scripture. Who is like him? Obviously, none. No one is like him. And similarly in Scripture, you have this refrain, almost like an answer to the rhetorical question, who is like him? You almost see this more. There is none like God. There is no God like our God. These two phrases, who is like and there is none, are used two different ways in Scripture. Sometimes they're used in the context of emphasizing God's bigness, His awesomeness, His power, like who is like you in power, working wonders. And sometimes these phrases are used in the context of describing God's nearness and His care. Who is a God like our God so near? There is no God like our God who is our help. We'll see both of these in Psalm 113 today. That God is awesome in his glory. And that God is near and he cares. So let's unpack it and let's start at the beginning. What we see first is a call for incomparable praise. A call for incomparable praise, verses 1 through 3. Notice verse 1, there's the triple call for praise. Praise the Lord is given to us three times. Repeated three times, no doubt because we're so forgetful. We need it underscored, we need it in bold, we need it italicized. Repeated three times, no doubt because this is so important. And it's not just the beginning, this triple Emphasis of praise the Lord, but look at verse 9, the very last line, praise the Lord again, bracketed to tell us this psalm is a praise psalm. 
Back to verse 2, we're told when we should praise him. His name should be blessed from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, may his praise start immediately. Don't delay. And may his praise never cease. May it be continual and forever. And then we're told in verse 3, this should be from the rising of the sun to its setting. Now, I used to think that that was referring to frequency. From the sunrise to the sun that set, all day, constant praise. But this phrase is used elsewhere, and from these other places in Scripture, the rising of the sun to its setting is referring actually to geography, not to time. So this is saying God's praise should be everywhere. Universal praise. Wherever the sun goes, may that land and that people praise him. So his praise is to be immediate and constant, eternal and universal. And that is incomparable praise. There's no praise like that. There's a lot of praise out there. We all praise things. Sometimes we do it religiously. Sometimes we... Don't do it religiously, but this world is full of praise. We give praise to things and people with compliments or with adoration or perhaps with a sports poster. We all get praise from people. Of course, not as much as we would like, but we get praise from people from time to time. But God's praise is nothing like this praise that we give or that we sometimes get or even the kind that we think we should get. No one says of Eli Manning or Tom Brady that they should get constant, unceasing, eternal, universal praise. Anyone who says that because they're a real diehard Giants fan or Patriots fan, just wait for the next interception, they won't say it. And, of course, they don't really mean that it should be constant, unceasing, unchanging, universal praise. No. No surprise that no one says that about our best athletes because not even other world religions have this view of worship that it should be constant and that it should be complete and it should be global like this. In Buddhism, did you know Buddha is not a god? He's a teacher. Offerings are laid before the Buddha, food or incense, but, but that's not worship. In Buddhism, there is no such thing as worship. In Hinduism, there are many deities. They're also called divas, which is an unfortunate term for Hindus, I suppose, that their gods are called divas. Divas don't have a good reputation these days. These divas are supposed to be worshipped, but you've got so many. How do you... How do you give soul worship to, all, uh, to one of them? You're not supposed to. You're supposed to spread it out. Even in Islam, which has a monotheistic God, Allah is to be prayed to five times a day. That's good enough. And then there's fasting once a year and one trip to Mecca sometime in your life. The God of the Bible calls us to constant, unceasing, unchanging universal praise. And he calls, it, calls us to it immediately. We wouldn't make up a God like that, would we? We would make up a God that's much more convenient, that gives us some sort of systematic program that's doable. 
But if there is one God who's infinitely glorious, then we must praise him now, and we must praise him always and forever. And he is to be praised everywhere by everyone. This is huge. We keep coming back to this thing in the Psalms that praise is something like the anchor that holds this whole world and the meaning of this world together. So when we praise him, we're engaging in the only thing in this world that is to be, and one day will be, universal and constant and unchanging. There's nothing else like that in this world because there's no God like this in this world. Psalm 113 calls us to this kind of incomparable praise and it also calls us to it telling us why. And the why is so, so important because praise is verbal, but it's not supposed to just be verbal. It's supposed to start in the head, in the mind, and in the heart. That's what springs forth in a verbal praise to God. And if it's in the mind and in the heart before it is voiced in the mouth, then we need to think long and hard about the why, not just that we should, not just the repetition of the call. We need to think long and hard about the why. So that's the second section of Psalm 113. It tells us why. The answer, an incomparable God. Did you notice verses 1 through 5 have Lord a lot in it? In most English Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, representing the Hebrew word Yahweh, I am. God's self-ascribed name. I am who I am. That's given to us seven times in verses 1 through 5. The God who simply is The God who is self-existent, who needs nothing. The God who is everything. So that he just says, I am. That alone shows us why God deserves incomparable praise. But then we also see, verses 4 to 5, this reason. He sits above. The reason that he sits above should be enough for incomparable praise. Sits above what? Well, above everything, above it all. Verse 5 says he's seated on high. Seated means that he reigns. He reigns over all. In verse 4, we see that specifically, that he's high above all nations. The nations are just a drop in the bucket with this God, according to the book of Isaiah. And then we see in verse 4 that his glory is above the heavens. Now, what does it mean, above the heavens? Isn't he in heaven? Well, don't think heaven like some ethereal celestial city that has you know, clouds and harps and chubby baby angels. That's not the kind of heaven this is talking about. It's saying that he's beyond the heavenlies or the stars. He's beyond the galaxy. He's beyond the known universe. Do you know how long it would take to cross the known universe going the speed of light, speed of light being 186,000 miles per second. How long would it take to cross the whole universe? 20 billion years. That's pretty big, isn't it? And God is somewhere beyond that. Whatever's after that, that's where God is. That's where he dwells. Oh, I know he's everywhere. Scripture makes that clear. He is everywhere. He's here. But scripture also has a purpose in telling us he is way out there. 
That's what we saw in Psalm 104 just a few weeks ago. Remember there it says that God covers himself with light as with a garment. The clouds, the light, the dark matter are like a cloak for his glory. It's a curtain that he's behind in a sense. In one sense, these things show his glory. In another sense, these things shield his ultimate glory. So we said when we were in Psalm 104, it's important to remember these two wings of the plane about God that Scripture reveals so clearly. That on the one hand, he is near and he cares and he hears and he's discernible, he's knowable, he's intimate and personal. On the other hand, the other wing, Scripture makes clear that God is other, that he is not like us, that he's distant, that he's not knowable apart from him revealing himself. And even then, we can't fully know him. He's mysterious. Well, verses 4 through 5 here in Psalm 113 are emphasizing the latter, that God is othered. He isn't like us. He's distant. He's mysterious. Now, that's worthy of praise. God is big. He's awesome. He hides himself behind the last star. But it also raises these questions. If he's that far away, does he really care? Is he really here? Does he... Does he really see what's going on? Is he really involved? And if so, then, if not, rather, then why pray? Does a God like this really hear our prayers? Do they get all the way there? If he does hear our prayers, does he really care to do anything? Is he really good to to provide care if he's that big and scary? The answer, of course, is yes. And that's the second part of the reason, the why. Verses 6 through 9 tells us he sees the needy, even though he is high above, even though he he sits on the last star. Verse 6 says he looks far down. He looks through the heavens and onto the earth, and he sees, he knows, and we'll see, he cares. This God who sits enthroned above the heavens, is simultaneously anything but aloof. In the words of one commentator on this psalm, he has done two things, each of which seems to make the other impossible. He's taken his seat so high that no one can match him, and yet he's, he has regard for the lowliest of the low, and that he looks down so far. There is no God like this God. The third section of the psalm gives us two vivid examples of how he sees the needy and how he cares for the needy, how he even stoops from his lofty throne down to the earth. The first is that he raises the poor. Verse 7 says, he raises the poor from the dust. The dust being a dirt floor, perhaps, in a hut. Probably more likely this means a homeless person. A homeless person in Bible times, they'd live in the dust. He meets them there. He also meets the needy, verse 7, who are in the ash heap. Oh, this is the poorest of the poor, not just the homeless 
the ash heap is referring to a, a designated place outside of a, the city walls where the trash would go, the city dump. The poorest of the poor in Bible times would live there. Perhaps you've been to Mexico and you've seen some of that. You've seen kids who live at the city dump. Because there's, there's food to, to, to scavenge. There's stuff to make some kind of shelter with. So people would dump their trash outside the city at the city dump and eventually it would get big enough that you have to burn it. Right? You can't just keep growing. You incinerate it. Hence the ash heap. Imagine that. People living at the ash heap outside the city because it's their best chance at survival. And yet God doesn't turn away in disgust or wince in uncomfortableness like we do. He sees them. He looks far down. In fact, he comes to them. It's not just that he sees their hurt and has pity. He comes to them. It's not just that he comes to them and says they're there, but he cares for them. And I keep using them, plural, but I don't know that I should. Because this is saying that God, the Most High, cares for even a single homeless person. It's talking about one poor person being lifted and raised. It's not just that God cares about poverty in general as a societal problem. It's not just the homeless as a group or the impoverished as a people. But individuals themselves, he cares for them. He rescues them. He raises the poor out of the pit. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And sometimes he raises them up so high that they sit with princes, verse 8 says. They eat with princes. They're the companion, the conversation partners of princes. Could you imagine? Ash heap to palace. Can you think of any biblical story like that? Remember Mephibosheth, 2 Samuel 9? Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's good friend. David dies. I'm sorry, Jonathan dies. David is now on his throne. And Mephibosheth's the only person in the land who can lay claim to the throne of Saul, the former king. So most people would interpret Mephibosheth as a threat to David. Not a few kings would invite that guy in, slit his throat, move on and say, well, that's settled. No one can say, I'm a kid of Saul. Give me the throne back. When David finds out that Mephibosheth is alive, he finds out as well that Mephibosheth is broke. He's living with someone. He's crippled. And so he says, bring him to me. And then he says to Mephibosheth that he will eat from now on at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth is a literal example of this thing happening in Psalm 113, that he lifts the poor from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes. But Psalm 113 isn't giving us a universal promise, right? Because there are some very poor people who die in their poverty. God will not take every poor person from dirt to palace. 
But it is meant as an encouragement to all of God's people, and not least the actual poor. It's meant as an encouragement to them that God sees, that he cares, that in that poverty, he's there, that he sustains you in it, that he can lift your spirit to high places even while your feet touch the ash heap. That he can do whatever he wants. He provides, sometimes with little, sometimes with much. Sometimes with great food, sometimes with scraps. But he provides, and he can do whatever he wants. He's not limited by ethnicity or social and cultural boundaries. He's never strapped. He never sees a need and goes, Oh, I don't have any cash on me. And sometimes, just sometimes, he has indeed taken one person from the city dump to the king's palace. And for those who are his, that really will be the end of the story anyway. That very thing will happen in every case on a whole other scale when one day he brings us out of this ash heap into his celestial palace where we eat with the king for all eternity. That's why Jesus said that Lazarus was the real rich man in the parable not the rich man who eventually ended up in torment. The second example of God's concern and his care is that he heals the barren. Verse 9. It says, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. That's probably not the best wording, because it sounds like she didn't have a home. She probably did. The NIV probably words it better, where it says, He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. So, childlessness and sorrow eventually leads to many kids in a happy home. Now, barrenness is a difficult topic difficult to experience in any culture of any time, but there are some especially unusual stigmas attached to barrenness in Bible times that you might not be aware of. In Bible times, when a woman wasn't able to bear children, everyone in the community assumed she must have done something horribly wrong, and she was now bearing the judgment of God. They would have assumed that she is basically useless to her society because that's what women do. In their day, women didn't have careers, and so just like a man would go to work, and if something happened and his leg was was amputated or he got leprosy or something like that, then, then he would have this feeling of futility, not being able to do what he was made to do, to work. And so they would have attached both a a banner of futility, and women themselves who were barrenness would have felt futile in their barrenness, not being able to do what God made them to do. And yet many times in Scripture, God healed the barren womb of a woman who cried out to him. You got Sarah, who was really old and barren, and eventually God provided Isaac. You have Rebecca, who eventually gave birth to a son, though she waited quite a while. You have Rachel, who eventually gave birth to Joseph after 
a time of barrenness. Hannah, of course, Hannah prayed about her womb, and the Lord opened it. Also, Samson's mother. Samson's mother was barren. She prayed. The Lord gave her a beast of a son. You also have Elizabeth in the New Testament, old in years. And God puts a son in her, in her womb. Now, Psalm 113 is talking about all those kind of stories, but also something more. Again, in any culture, barrenness means disappointment, has feelings of weakness, and even helplessness, right? What do you do to fix it? Even today, you go to the doctors, but at some point you could sense that you have run out of options. It's right for that to feel hard. That's a result of sin in this world. It's part of the fall. It's not what God intended this world to be. And yet it's not universally so part of the fall in that some women bear children and some seem to not be able to for a time or for good. So it's mysterious. It's mysterious. And verse 9 of Psalm 113 doesn't exactly help the mystery because it looks like a promise. It looks like... God just loves to open wombs. What about mine? But like God's rescue of the poor in verse 7, so verse 9 is not a universal promise. And yet, it's meant as an encouragement to all God's people, not least those who struggle with infertility. You see, these two vivid examples, one of the impoverished, the other the barren, they can be seen literally. You have an example like Mephibosheth. You've got an example like Hannah and others of God doing this very thing. But perhaps even more so, we should see these two vivid examples as more symbolic than anything. Because in the Bible, barrenness is often a symbol for hopelessness. Not just hopelessness for women who are actually barren, but it's a symbol of hopelessness for those who are spiritually barren. So in Isaiah 54, verse 1, God says this to a nation, not just an individual woman. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. God's going to bring forth life, spiritual life. You've been barren, desolate, but God's going to change that in the case of Israel there. So what the dirt poor and the barren woman have in common is their utter helplessness, their seeming hopelessness, the realization that they cannot affect their needed change. They are desperate in their need. It's not a matter of working your way out of it. It's not a, not a matter of just wanting it more badly. Even the guy who lives on the ash heap, it's the same case for him. What's he going to do to change things? He doesn't just need more confidence at the next job interview. He lives on an ash heap. Get him a suit. He, he lives on an ash heap. Where's he going to put it? doesn't matter how hard they work, so they know helplessness, and they know hopelessness. So I think this is talking about something 
or at least pointing us to something that is incomparably greater than finances and family. That's my last little bit here. Bear with me, we're not done yet. Something incomparably greater than finances and family. Something greater than money or or children. Something greater than getting out of poverty. Something greater than healing of the womb. Psalm 113 quotes from Hannah's prayer after after Samuel is born. You can read it later, 1 Samuel 2. Let me read just a little bit of it. After she conceives, she prays to the Lord and she says, and listen for the Psalm 113 tones here. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has now born seven. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Psalm 113 takes that as a direct quote and puts it in verses 7 to 9. It uses Hannah's prayer. Do you know who else uses Hannah's prayer? Who else leans upon Hannah's prayer in Scripture? Anyone? Mary. Mary prays after she conceives. In Luke 1, she prays, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in the God of my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. It's not literally quoting from Hannah's prayer like Psalm 113 is, but it's clearly leaning on Hannah's prayer, as all scholars seem to agree. So you've got Hannah, and then you've got Psalm 113 quoting Hannah, talking about God giving children to the barren woman, and then you've got Mary in the New Testament leaning on Hannah once again. What's the significance? What we saw in Psalm 113 is that God is on high, but he sees the lowly. And he comes and he rescues. They all have that in common. And this changes everything. The poor are now eating with princes. The barren women now with full and happy homes. He does what only he can do. And he loves to do it when it is most desperate. When Israel seems most desperate, Jesus comes. When Hannah seems at the end of her rope, a son is born. In fact, with all of those opening of the womb examples I listed in the Old Testament. You know they all have in common? God gave birth to some special kid who came and did great things for the Lord and for his nation. God loves to do what only he can do. Now don't these themes just ring a gospel chime in your ears? I mean, just think about this. What are we talking about? God on high came down. A son was born. He always has a son who's born. They all point to one. The one who came down to the dust, who dwells in the midst of the ash heap for us. He's the one who went to the pit for us. By grace and through faith, he raises them up. He raises us up. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. In short, Jesus went even lower than Psalm 113 describes, and he takes us even higher than Psalm 113 describes. We could say 
the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is Psalm 113 on steroids. Remember his care for the poor? Yeah, sometimes physical poor. He did feed the hungry. But oftentimes the poor in Jesus' parables are those who are spiritually poor. In Luke 4, quoting from Isaiah 61, I think he has the spiritual poor in mind when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty, liberty to those who are oppressed. You see, we're all spiritually poor. We are all spiritually barren. And only he can raise us up. Only he can give life. How? He became poor for us. He didn't just go to the poor and rescue them. He became poor for us. That's in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells him what it is. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You spiritually impoverished can become spiritually rich in the poverty of Jesus Christ. Poverty, what what do you mean? Well, he died for us. In the words of Hebrews 13, he went outside the city for us. Remember where the trash was burned? Remember where the ash heap was? Outside the city. So in Hebrews 13, 12, it says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And the context of Hebrews 13 is clear that it's referring to the city dump where things were burned. Uh, Jesus wasn't burned, but he was He was burned for us in a way. He died for us. He experienced the wrath of God for us. He went outside the city literally for us where he was crucified. So we're not wrong to make a gospel connection here. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, says of Psalm 113, verses verses 7 and 8, anticipate the great downward and upward sweep of the gospel. That the gospel in Jesus goes even deeper than the dust it goes to the grave. And it takes us even higher than the throne of princes. It takes us to the throne room of God. And that's already happened in a sense. In a sense, through his resurrection, Jesus has already raised us up with him. So Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, we read that we've been raised with Christ, so we should seek the things which are above. Where Christ is, he's seated at the right hand of God. So set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Isn't baptism a picture Of these very things. Romans 6, Paul says, We were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
or in Colossians 2, that we've been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's almost like this Bible has one author. Don't you think? I mean, to get baptism hints in Psalm 113, who'd have thunk? It's not that it's there, but we think whole Bible. And you can't help but think of things like baptism. Can't help but think of things like Ephesians 2. Or Colossians 3, when you hear, he came down to us, he met us in our need, he raised us up with him to sit with princes. We wouldn't think to invent a God this big, this scary, and yet this near. A God transcendent and yet intimately caring for the smelly, the poor, the helpless and the seemingly hopeless. This God cares for the poor, the weak, the broken, the marginalized. And spiritually speaking, that is all of us. That's all of us. We don't see it. That's why the poor sometimes have a better shot of getting in and getting the gospel. They already know about need. They already know what it feels like to be hopeless and helpless. That's why Jesus says it takes a miracle for a rich guy to get saved. It's like trying to shove a a giant camel through the eye of a needle. And it sounds impossible, right? So the disciples said to him, that's impossible. And Jesus says, yeah, with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He does it sometimes. So praise him. If that's you, praise him. Praise him. Praise him now, praise him always, praise him forever, praise him everywhere because there's none like him. There's no God like our God. There's none beside him. He's great and greatly to be praised. Amen?